0: Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come together. We ask you to bless this time as we study and look at your word, and we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to be in verse 8, but I do want to read the previous verses because this is one of uh, Paul's famous very long sentences. It starts in verse uh, verse 3 and continues all the way through, so... We want to get the context of where he's at. Starting at verse three, giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed, but in all things approving ourselves as the minister of God, in much patience, in affliction, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings, by by pureness, by knowledge, by long suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit by love unfeigned by the word of truth by the power of God by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left by honor and dishonor by evil report and good report as deceivers and yet true as unknown and yet well known as dying and behold we live as chastened and not killed as sorrowful yet always rejoicing as poor yet making many rich as having nothing and yet possessing all things. O you Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, our heart is enlarged. Okay. So he covered all the positive sides of these <laughs> presenting the the gospel uh, in, in ministry in not blame, and then he starts kind of an interesting section about the grace of God and how how, kind of how it can be seen. He goes, We are to be workmen approved basically by honor and dishonor. And I don't believe in here that he's saying that they were either honorable or dishonorable, but that's I believe that he's saying perceived to be such. And he goes, even if we are dishonorable, the the ministry is not to be blamed. And I think this is something we need to be able to look at and say, too many people will look at a church and say, well, the pastor did this, the deacons did this, the, the people are doing this, and they judge the whole ministry by the individuals within here and I think that Paul is saying that either to honor or dishonor God's ministry still goes forward. Now, it doesn't matter, well it does matter and yet it doesn't matter is what he's saying. Okay? We don't want everybody in the church to be dishonorable, but if they are dishonorable, Christ is still in charge of the church and going to make it make it move forward. He goes by evil report and good report. So Christ no matter what his message is going to get through all things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God why not because of us because of him how many times can we do something wrong and yet God gets the glory when people see that his servants are human beings I've heard the testimony I watched this person they weren't totally wiped out God didn't take them out You know, they were normal people. One of the worst things that probably could happen to us is to be so perfect that people look at us and say, well, I can't be a Christian. I can't be anything like that person. You know, that person's, (laughs) I can't be good like that person. And I've heard that kind of stuff. I mean, I go, you got to understand, it doesn't matter. Because number one, anybody you think is perfect is not perfect in the first place. You know, does that mean we go out and sin so that other people can say, oh, well, I can be a sin. No, but when we do fail, God can still use it, all right? And this is what he's saying, by evil report and by good report. And again, this may or may not be actual good and bad reports because people spoke bad about Paul all the time. You know, I love the poster saying, you know, wanted, you know, wanted pastor, and then uh, you get Paul's resume, <laughs> you know, Imprisoned many times, uh, run out of town many times, shipwrecked many times, uh, but called of God. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, how how many people, how many churches would even consider (laughs) Paul's resume? Uh, Only wrote most of the New Testament, but most churches would never have considered his resume to be their pastor. Uh, You know, we don't want a pastor who keeps getting thrown into jail. At least in American (laughs) churches, we wouldn't do that. Uh, But, you know, it says evil report and good report. And again, I'm not sure whether he's saying actual good and bad report. But even if it is actual, God can still be glorified within his church. Now, if everybody in the church is that way, you've got a bigger problem. But, you know, if you only have one or two people in there and there's just some bad reports, God will still be exalted. Maybe they did bad things. But I really think this is people's opinion of, of the report. Because Paul was being attacked all the time. And I think he's going through, you know, hey, you know, some of you honor me. Some of you don't honor me. You know, some of you have bad reports. You've been listening to bad reports about me. you know, And you're right. I've been chased out of this town. I've been chased out of that town. I was stoned, stoned in this town. I was thrown into prison in this town. And, you know, he's well, there's plenty of bad reports. You want to listen to the bad reports? <laughs> you can, but God is still going to be, be, be glorified. Uh, as deceivers and yet true. And this is where I really start beginning to see. He's seeing how people look at him. Because what is he called by the Judaizers? You're deceiving the people. You're not giving them the whole truth. And he says, you know, you may look at me as a deceiver, but I'm still speaking the truth. And this is why we speak the truth. People may not appreciate what we say. They may say bad things about us. And this is coming more and more true even in our generation. As we speak the word of God and the truth, People are going to say bad things about us. When we call fornication a sin, people are going, well, how dare you? Everybody lives together. How can you, how can you judge that lifestyle? Well, I'm not judging it. God is. But we get an evil report because we speak God's. We, we get this idea that we're, we're trying to be a deceiver when we're speaking the truth. And this is what's going to go. He goes, as unknown and yet well known. This is kind of an interesting thing. There were a lot of people who didn't know P- uh, Paul, but a lot of people knew him, especially, especially in the spiritual realm. Yeah. And it's kind of a, an amazing thing. Sometimes you may not, people may not even know your name. Yeah. It's funny when I listen to these guys on the radio, and half of them, I don't know their names. People go, who you were listening to? I don't know. Whoever was on at, <laughs> at, at 3 o'clock. <laughs> you know, I don't know who it was. <laughs> Noah's voice. Noah's voice. Paul goes on, as dying and behold, we live. You know, Paul was not worried about his reputation, and we shouldn't be worried about our reputation. If God is truly our defender and our defense, our reputation doesn't mean anything. Besides which, we don't have a reputation worth, worth defending anyway. It should be dead anyway. Because I can do nothing through Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But if I really understand that I can do nothing from, through him, then my reputation needs to die and let God live through me. And then it says, as chastened yet and not killed. Paul definitely understood this one. Yeah. Beaten so many times, Stone, stoned to death as far as we know. But we, most people believe that he was actually dead and was resurrected. Yeah. Uh, well. when, and he may have just been so close to death, it doesn't matter what, which, whichever case it was. Uh, He's under a pile of rocks. You usually died under that pile of rocks. Even if the rock didn't kill you, the the weight of the stones did. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Kind of an interesting statement because we can be sorrowful in our walk with God, but yet there should be a rejoicing that's deep. You know, not you know, sorrow is an emotion and we can't really control that emotion. It's like being angry or being in love or or uh, you know, even being ang- you know, being upset for a moment, you know, there's sorrow, there's 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 tears, but yet if you if you know what the experience is, there's also that deep rejoicing inside you that God is still in, in charge. Even though I may not understand everything that's going on, and yes, the emotion in me is that I'm a little sorry. And I guess funerals would probably be the greatest example of that, so a funeral for somebody who's saved. You know, where there's that very mixed notion of you're sorry you're not going to get to see them anymore, and yet you're happy that they went home. When my sister died, I told the pastor, go, I just can't be extremely sorrowful for her. She's, she's home. She's no longer in pain. And he goes, I understand what you're saying. Now, was it the fact that, you know, was there some sorrow? I'm not going to see my, my sister anymore. Yes, but it was, she went to heaven. Now, How can I be awfully sad about the fact that she's in heaven? I couldn't be. Even at that day, I couldn't, even though we were on that day of celebrating her home going, I just could not be totally sorrowful for it. And there's that mixed emotion. You miss the person, and yet there's an excitement that they've gone home. Now, if, somebody, if you don't know that somebody's saved, there's no joy in that, in that event uh, because you have the sorrow of never seeing them again and, and possibly the sorrow of never, ever seeing them again. And so he goes, we can be sorrow, yet we always rejoice, as poor, yet making many rich. Okay. Paul said, I've learned to be content in much and with little, and there were times when he had little, but yet he gave spiritual as riches to the people that were, he dealt with. And it's having nothing and yet possessing all things. You know, God owns everything, so even when we have nothing, at least in our understanding, we have the capability of having everything. And this is the good news for us. How many of us don't get things because, number one, we never ask God for anything? You know, we just, God does, you know, and there is a kind of under, thought or process that God, it, it's really spiritual to have nothing. Well, the Bible doesn't talk about that being, a, being the case. Mm-hmm. Abraham was very wealthy. David was wealthy. Solomon was wealthy. Job was wealthy. There's nothing bad about having wealth. And there's nothing inherently righteous about being broke. No. Okay? Either one of them can be God's will for our life if that's what he wants for us at that particular time. And... The problem with many people when they get wealthy is they start to forget about God and, and stop relying on God. But there's nothing inherently good or bad about either side. And he says, you know, we have nothing and yet we possess everything. And Paul's basically saying, God's going to give you everything you need. And we look at that and say, God, thank you. You know, this is Paul's testimony. Everything that looks bad isn't really that bad. All things work together for good, and you know, they, they're giving us good reports and bad reports. They're, they're saying we have nothing. They're, they're calling us deceivers, and yet we're doing nothing, speaking the truth. We're unknown, and yet we're well known. Uh, you know, we're dying, and yet we give life. <laughs> you know, this is a very valuable thing because this is our life as Christians. You know, as we hold up Christ, people are going to attack and criticize us. It's just the way it is. There are going to be those that say, yes, I, I, I resonate with that. Yes, I'm going to get saved because I, God is working on my heart. And then there are going to be others saying, oh, you guys are just nothing but a bunch of you know, uh, losers. You, you're, you're judgmental. You know, who are you to tell me what's right and wrong? Uh, or the ever-famous, you think you're better than I am? You know, no, I'm just telling you what God says. You know, and this is why we need, to be ready. we need to be ready for the attacks because people will make these kind of attacks. You, know, you think you're better than I am. Is that what you're trying to tell me? No, I'm just telling you what God thinks. Well, are you perfect? No, I'm just telling you what God says. I already know that I'm not perfect. I know what God says about me. You know, and this is why it can be very hard sometimes to witness people because they, when you start losing an argument and you have no place to go, you usually resort to attacking the person. And this is where we're at in our political system. It's where we're at in our daily conversations with people. When they have nowhere to stand, they attack. They attack each other. They attack us. It doesn't matter, you know. When they feel like they're losing, the flesh strikes out and attacks. We see it in churches too. When somebody's position is being attacked and they don't, they can't defend it or you know work on it, the desire is I'm going to win this and I'm going to win it in any way, shape, or form. If I have to cut you off at the knees and make you make you you know, fall to the ground because of, because of it, I'll do that. If I have to de- totally destroy you, I'll do that. And this is the way the world acts. And uh, not a good place to be, and yet we need to be ready. We need to be ready for those kind of attacks, and not, there's nothing personal in that attack necessarily. It feels definitely personal, because they're attacking us. They're not attacking what we believe. And in one sense, it is personal, but we've also got to understand that it's human nature and not really a personal attack. Yes, they're attacking me at a personal level, but it's not really a person's attack. It's just, I'm going to win this, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to win it. And we need to be careful with it. And this is where love comes in. You know, Jesus was all-knowing. He knew where they were going to go, and it made him easy to f- defend himself because he would just answer their questions. You know, The thing is, we've got the Holy Spirit in us. The Holy Spirit can give us the same kind of answers if we just will let him help us make those answers. And then he says in verse 11, oh, you Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you. Our heart is enlarged. You know, Paul's begging with him. He says, you know, we love you. We're speaking to you and our heart. We just love you so much that our heart is getting larger. And it's the same idea that we have. You know, my heart is so full of love for you. It's getting bigger. And that's what Paul's saying. I love you so much Corinthians that <laughs> my heart is getting bigger you know my mouth is open I'm speaking unto you I'm speaking the truth and I and I'm speaking it to you because I love you and it's my love is getting deeper you know and I don't know if you've been there but just to have a great love for somebody who's abusive and and not listening can be very hard and yet it's amazing when it happens when God just enlarges the love God I don't 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 understand uh, you just make me love these people more and more and they're and they're getting more and more miserable and yet I love them. And I think about uh, David Wilkerson with Nicky Cruz and the cross and the switchblade. You know, every time he says to Nicky, I love you, and Nicky does more things to make it harder and God just gives him more love for the guy. Okay? Uh, and it happens most... Quite often with pastors, and they love their church, and you know the church makes things difficult for them at times. And God just says, "Okay, let's love you, let's have you love them a little bit more." Mm-hmm. And you know, there's been times when I've told God, "God, why did you help teach me to love people? Because it hurts to love people," mm-hmm. and that's what Paul is saying here. It hurts. You know, Corinthians, you're, you're you're making life difficult for me, but I'm still loving you, and I'm still going to speak the truth. You may not recognize it as the truth. You may not even recognize it as love. And sometimes. You, our kids don't understand when we when we say things that out of love that they didn't want to hear. Our friends may not, you know, our family are the same way. We, you know, and even us sometimes when we hear somebody speak truth, our spirit says yes, it's true, and our flesh says no, I don't want to hear it, and we strike back because it doesn't sound very loving at the time because it hurt. And this is something that Paul saying, you know, Corinthians, I'm saying hard things, but I love you, and my heart is getting. Larger. It's being enlarged. Uh, verse 12. And you are not straightened in us, but we are straightened in, in your own bowels. Now for a recompense is the same. I speak as, as unto my children. Uh, be you also enlarged. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness and what comi- communion has light with darkness? And what concord has Christ with Baal? And what part has he that believes with an infidel? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Wherefore, come out among them and be you separate, says the Lord, and touch not unclean things, for I will and I will receive you and i will be a father unto you and you shall be my sons and daughters says the lord almighty okay he says we are not straitened in or you are not straitened in us but we but you are straitened in our in your own bowels straitened means to be pressed to compress okay he says you are not a distress you are not pressure in us you know Paul loves these people, and yes, he's being hurt on one side, but he also recognizes that what they do in one sense doesn't hurt him. Okay? Because he loves them so much, yes, there is a hurt. But in the long run, he's not the one that gets hurt by their misdeeds. And this is what I tell parents so often. You know, we can be very hurt by the direction our kids take, but by the same token, we're not the one that's going to suffer the consequences for what our kids go through, they're responsible for their own decisions, and I understand that's hard. I've been there, done that with some of my kids. You know, looking at and going, "What could I have done different? What did I mess up? Why? How? You know?" And God had to, you know, kind of hit me upside the head, saying, "You did the best you could. What? what did I do things perfectly? Absolutely not. You know, none of us have been perfect with our kids, but our kids are still responsible for their." relationship with God and their direction that they put their life in. It still hurts. It still hurts. Oh, it, believe me, I understand that it hurts. It hurts to see your kids go the wrong way. It hurts to, to... But, you know, we've got to be careful that we don't condemn ourselves. And this is what Paul's saying. You know, I'm not the one... Ultimately, I'm not the one that's going to be hurt by this. He goes, you... But you are distressed in your own bowels. You're the ones that are going to be pressed. You're the ones that are going to be hurting. And bowels, that, that lower inner being, who they are, he goes, you're going to be so distressed, your, your innermost being is going to be pressed. We've all been there at some point in our life where just deep down we're in total distress because we've done things that we know we shouldn't do. We've been disobedient to God. We know we're not We're supposed to be with God. And what he's saying is, when you do that, it's really not me who's being hurt, OK? And yes, the pastor who loves their body, the parent who loves their child does get hurt. But ultimately, we've got to come to the place where we realize, as much as it hurts to, not, to see people not do the right, on one side, it's not my problem. If I've done my job, I've, I've trained my children upright, and even if I didn't, <laughs> it's still not my problem because it is their problem and this is the adage. There are people that come from good homes that go totally bad and there are people that come from miserable awful homes that turn out to be very good. Why? Because the child themselves is responsible for their action. Now is it easier for a child from a good home to be good? Absolutely. Is it easier for a child that's from a bad home to be bad? Absolutely. Okay, that fits, their, that fits the bend and it fits the training. But they're responsible for their own reaction because God is gonna step into their life no matter what. God steps into everybody's life and directs them and convicts them. And what they do is their call. And we're not guilty of doing just about anything. Now granted, we can make it easier for them to be good, easier for them to be bad, but it's ultimately their call. You know, and our own government understands this. You know, when they pick up a kid and the kid goes, well, you know, this is what mom and dad always did. Well, that may, not, that may be true, but you're the one that violated the law. Okay? They're not going to go out and arrest mom and dad for being the bad example. All right? They probably should. <laughs> but by godly standards, he says, each person is responsible for their own sin. Nobody is going to be punished for their parents' sin, and nobody's going to be rewarded for their parents' good works. He says we're each going to receive the reward for what we do. And this is what he's saying in here. You know, know, oh, oh, Corinthians, you know, I'm going to hurt, yes, but I'm not the one that suffers from it. I'm not the one under pressure from it. You are. And it's going to be right at the inner owls, your your very core of your being that you're going to suffer. And we've been there, all of us have been there at some point in our life. Hope, you know, if you're really going to be honest with God, you're going to, you have to come to that place to recognize I'm a sinner. I, miss, I need Christ. At least one time in your life, you've got to recognize it. And most of us have been many times in our life. And he goes, Now for a recompense in the same, I speak to you as my children, be you also enlarged. He goes, as a recompense, as a reward or required of the same, and I speak to you as my children. Paul's saying, right now I'm speaking to you as a father. Be enlarged. Learn to love one another. Learn to have the same love I have for you. And, you know, sometimes there is this idea where we just speak, as somebody who cares for them as a parent, as a pastor, as, a, as just a loving friend. You know, if you don't love somebody, it's easy not to, not to care what they do. Before God gave me my love for people, it used to be, okay, I'm going to give you a lot of truth, and you can do what you want with it, and I don't care. Not a great attitude for the teacher. <laughs> okay? And God now give, has given me this love, and sometimes I tell God, you know, Why? <laughs> God, it hurts when you tell all these people, and then watch them do just the wrong, <laughs> go out and do just what you told them, you know, told them the Bible tells them not to do. And he says, just part of what it is, you're going to love. When you love people, they know you care, and then you're there to pick up the pieces after they've messed up everything, after having been told not to do something. And the same thing we do with our kids, they, they, they go in and out and do what we tell them not to, and And we pick them up, we kind of dust them off a little bit, chide them a little bit and get them back on the path. And that's the way it is with love. When our friend goes off the wrong direction, we try to correct where they're going. You know, one time I had to go to a friend and I had to say, you know what? You know, we've been talking for a couple weeks now and I've been giving you some really, I didn't ever tell you what God's, what I believe God wants you to do and I'm gonna tell you today. He wasn't too happy with what he was hearing Went away a little upset. Called me back later and said, I really thinking about it was, and I realized you're trying, you know, that you spoke out of love and that you were wanting to help me. And you know, we don't always like to hear the chastisement from anybody, even from a good friend, from a parent. Nobody. If we're really honest before God, we realize later on they spoke the truth. Hopefully, before we go out and mess up everything in our life. But God says, I've got you where I want you. I'm going to get his word. When we hear his word, God's greatest promise to us is his word does not return unvoid. void. 14 is a verse that's well known to most people. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness and what communion has light with darkness this is a verse that is very important for us in living in general it's always applied to marriage but this is much more than just marriage okay marriage is the absolute epitome of this we should not be unequally yoked we should not be a Christian and an un- a non-Christian married together but this also goes into our business, okay? You should not be in business with, an. Un, if you're a Christian, you should not be in business with a non-Christian because they're going to want to do things the world's way and not God's way. And in most cases, there's not a whole lot of problem, but there are certain problems. I know, I know a Christian businessman who actually taught his salesmen that they could lie to the non-believers because they didn't believe in God and it wasn't a problem. Okay. He taught them to offer them one-time deals and he had to act now or not or not get this special discount that you could get at any time. But you know, he used the world's way of running a business to run his supposedly Christian business. Okay. And it's bad enough when a Christian will do that. Yes. Now you get a Christian who wants to run his business honestly and with integrity with a non-Christian that's wanting to do that who is going to win usually the non-christian in the marriage the non-christian is usually the one that wins you know and yes there's the an occasional time when the christian converts the non-christian in the process but the odds are so stacked against you it's not worth you know saying because i've heard people well you know i'll get married to this guy this guy or this girl and eventually they'll get saved well, you know, every once in a great while they do, but now all that does is encourage them to keep trying to do it. Well, I know somebody who did. Yeah, and how many people didn't? You know, and most of the time you see a Christian and non-Christian get married, the Christians the non-Christians going, Oh yeah, I'll go to church with you, no problem. And very shortly thereafter, they're not going to church. And it starts innocently enough. You know, oh my mom. Why do you have to go tonight? Or, you know, mom and dad you know, mom and dad are having a party Sunday. You can miss church once. It's really not that big a deal. You know, next month, you know, oh, we're, we're having a beach party, you know, and it's going to be all weekend long. You can miss church before long that Christian isn't going to church anymore, not reading their Bible anymore, you know. And then even if you don't have that person fall away, you start getting kids involved in this thing. And how are you going to raise your kids? How do you make a kid go to church when you want to make, have go to church when the other partner doesn't go to church, especially if it's the father? You know, but even if it's the mother, it's like, okay, well, family's going to church. Mom's not going. Dad's not going. There gets to be a point where you can't, can't bring it. This is a critical point to... Uh, of contention do not go into business and i will go even so far as to say your best friend should not be a non-christian if you're a christian now that doesn't mean totally ignore all non-christians you know it doesn't mean you can't be friends with a non-christian but that person a non-christian shouldn't be your best friend the one that you're going to confide in the one you're going to seek advice from the ones you the one you're going to hang out the most with because that person will lead you away from God more, especially if you look for them for advice. Because a non-Christian is not going to give you godly advice, usually. You know, uh, very rare will they give you godly advice. It's hard enough to get godly advice from a Christian sometimes. Okay, you know, well, you know, my, my spouse and I are just really having a hard time. What should we do? You know, I guess maybe you should get separated or divorced. Okay, well, what, what Bible verse are you using for that advice? Well, no, but I'm just telling you what, you know, what all my friends do and what everybody else does. You know, well, you know, you know, you don't like that person, go talk about them behind their back a lot. You know, what, what verse are we looking at? Well, we're not looking at a verse. You know, it, this is just it. You know, we want to our advice, our direction to be righteous. And this is so important for us. When we're looking at giving people advice, are we looking at what God says or are we looking at what the world says? And I told you all, one of the greatest things, attributes my dad did for me is when I would have questions, we went to the scripture. It was never, this is what I think or this is what you should do or this is what the church thinks. It's, let's go see what God says. We'd open up the Bible and look and see, what did God say about this? What does God say to to do? You can't go wrong when you're using God's word (laughs) to help make your decisions. That is, as long as you take them in context, because we all know if you take a verse out of context, you can make it say just about anything. Mm -hmm. Okay? Because there's lots of verses, you know, and and a great one is the joke, you know, about the person who's just opening up his Bible and reading. And and he opens up the Bible and it says, "Uh, Judas hung himself he goes, well, this can't be the word for today. Uh, And then he opens up and he points his finger down and he says, and the verse says, go and do likewise. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, no, definitely not. What opens it up, points it again. And the next verse says, what you do, do quickly. (laughs) Okay, yeah. None of those verses had anything to do with what you're supposed to do with your life necessarily, but if you take things out of context, you can make the Bible end up saying, okay, quite a few things. The Bible talks about just about everything there is under the sun. It talks about idolatry. It talks about worshiping false gods. It talks about doing lots of things wrong. And if you were just saying, okay, God, what am I doing? Oh, and he committed adultery with, the, you know, with Bathsheba. Oh, okay, I get to commit adultery. The Bible says so. See, it says so right there. No, you know, make sure you're reading it in context. Know what it says. And very important because this taking verses out of context can get us into trouble. And this is where people will make the Bible say all kinds of things. They'll just lift a verse out and say, well, see, it says right here. Okay, what was, what, what was this verse in context of? You know, and this is why I say we take this verse in its complete context. You know, we, most people lift out that first person only, be not, be not unequally yoked with a nonbeliever. And then he goes on deeper into this, and this is why I'm saying, and it applies to all of our life, not just marriage. Because he says in the next part of it, uh, "For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness?" In other words, he's saying you really can't be hanging out with the unrighteous. There should be no fellowship. You know, and you know if you've been to places, you know, this is the way I feel half the time. I go to parties and and uh, you know with family or anybody, and all of a sudden drinking and and stuff is breaking out. You know, it's like I don't, I don't enjoy those parties. I don't want to be around it very long. Mm-hmm. I want to get out as soon as possible because it, even if they're not being unrighteous at their moment, they're going to be. Especially when they get drunk, mm-hmm. they're really going to get stupid when they get drunk, and I don't want to be around when that, when that part hits. Mm-hmm. And you know, and he says, "What well, communion has light with darkness? Light is supposed to drive out darkness." Mm-hmm. And When we're around the darkness, people don't like the light. One of the things I have found with people is when you are a Christian in in the midst of a lot of non-Christians, you'll be accused of judging them when you haven't even said a word. They feel uncomfortable because you've brought God and light in the middle of their darkness. And they'll get very uncomfortable, and they're not going to want that, that light around and they're gonna to try to push, it, push you away and they're gonna help get rid of you. They're gonna help not invite you to parties anymore. They're gonna help not invite you to their activities because just your presence there brings God into the midst of it and God changes things. And God brings conviction. And they're looking at you like, well, you're just no fun. You, you, you're ruining the party. You're a wet blanket. Yep. And hopefully we are. <laughs> But this is what he's saying, don't be this way. He goes, and what concord or, uh, or uh, intimacy does Christ have with Belial? And Belial literally means Satan. Okay, Christ and Satan do not fellowship together. Okay, uh, The only time Satan showed up in Jesus' life was to try to try to accuse him and try to trick him into doing something and tempt him. Other than that, he wasn't around. What did the demon say when Jesus was around? Ready, you know, you know, are you here to torture us before our time? You know, uh, what are you doing here, you son of God? <laughs> if you did if you had any if you had any doubts to whether Jesus was the son of God, the demons over and all, over and over, said that he was the son of God. they say, I know who you are. Yeah, you know, we know who you are. Uh, what are you what are you doing here? It's not time for our judgment yet. What are you doing here? Right. Are you coming to judge us before our judgment time? They understood who he was. They, they spoke who he was. Sons of Sceva went out to cast out demons. If you remember, they go, we adjure you by the, in the name of Christ whom Paul preaches to come out. And the demons go, we know who Jesus is. We're beginning to know who Paul is. You know, but who are you as they attack as they attacked this the demons came out and attacked them? You know, they were beginning to know who Paul was, which is kind of interesting. Paul was walking with God in a very strong strength, and they're going, Yeah, we're beginning to know that guy. Yeah. Yeah, we definitely know who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. You know, we're beginning to know who Peter and Paul and James and these disciples are. Yeah, you know, but uh, you we don't know, we don't recognize your authority, you know, we don't recognize you for anything. Christ does not have a relationship and communion with, with, with Satan. You know, Christ is master, Satan is the created being and he's the servant, whether he wants to be or not, he's still the servant. Paul here is saying, you know, Jesus doesn't have any communion with him. And what part has he that believes with an infidel? Those of us who believe, why should we be hanging out with infidels? And again, we have to walk carefully with that one because if we're not spending any time with non-believers, we have nobody to evangelize. But again, should that non-believer be the person we're hanging out with beyond playing sports or activities or that, you you know, who's my best friend is definitely should not be, if I'm a Christian, my best friend should not be a lost person because that's not a good way to be. There's no relationship. There shouldn't, be, there shouldn't be a unity in that relationship. We as Christians are to be unified. We are to be one. And this is very important for us as we look at this. Jesus said, you will know that you're my disciples by their love, one for another. And if our love is toward a non-believer, we've got a problem there. There's something not right. And this is why it's very important for us. So many times in my lifetime, I come across certain people and I go, I know this person's a Christian. The spirit in them and the spirit in me has been united. There's other people that will tell me. They don't even tell me they're a Christian sometimes. It's just, I know they're a Christian before I even talk to them because the spirit is connected. There's other people you talk to and they go, yeah, I'm a Christian. But there's nothing inside. I'm not saying they're not a Christian, but there's nothing inside you that's jumping out and saying, Yes, they're a Christian. You know, not saying they aren't, but the Spirit isn't totally flowing out of them if they are, and there's not making that connection. And then there's some people you go, Yeah, you may say you're a Christian, but I don't see any proof at all that you're a Christian. And again, that may be a judgmental statement, but he says, By their fruit you shall know them are they exhibiting Christ? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. This is another one of those verses that is kind of taken out of context frequently, that we are the temple of God. But you know, it's taken in context. He's going, what agreement has the temple of God with the lost world? Okay, because God dwells in us. And it is true that God dwells in us. And he says, I will be their people. But I love this one. I will dwell in them and walk in them. God indwells us. We put on Christ and God indwells us. You know, and it's a wonderful thing that he walks in us. Isn't that exciting? It is to me. You know, he is in us. And it is an amazing thing to have God living in us. In Revelation, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the the door and knock. He answers, I will come in and sup with him. What a wonderful picture. Jesus saying, I'm knocking. Are you going to let me in? And this was spoken to Christians. We, We use it as a salvation verse, but he's speaking to Christians. Okay. You know, I'm, you, somehow you kicked me outside of the, outside of the dining room. Are you going to let me come in and eat? And I have said it in this way so many times. There are many of us who have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and instead of letting Him sit on the throne all the time, there's times when we kind of kick Him into the other room. Okay, Jesus, you go hide in the other room, and when I need You, I'll call You out. You know, He's ours. He's on. Our, you know, He's our Savior, but we're kind of pushing Him off someplace. Off to the side and go. I'm going to sit on this. I'm going to sit on this phone, and when I need you, when I've when I'm in a big enough problem or a big enough issue, I'll call you. you know, don't 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 call me. I'll call you, Jesus. Uh, Jesus doesn't stay locked in rooms. He doesn't he doesn't stay non calling. You know, and he will start working on. If you're his child, he's going to start working on making sure that you're listening. But it says, "You shall be my." people. I love this. God makes us his, his people, his people to command. Now for us in America, this is a hard thing for us to understand that he is king. We don't really comprehend the king. We really don't even like government that much. We don't like this whole idea of somebody being in charge and, and being sovereign. And yet he says, you're my people. I have rule. I'm going to be the one that is, is in charge. And this statement of you will be my people has been repeated so many times in Scripture. You know, in Exodus 29, 45. Hey, all, through uh, all through the Old Testament. Leviticus 26 12, Ezekiel 37 27, Jeremiah 31 33, uh, Ezekiel 36 38, he says, I'm going to be your, you know, your God, I'll be your God, and you're going to be my people. You know, when I read that, I was wondering if he's talking about the end times when he gets the new Jerusalem, the new city, or if he's talking about now, if you believe in me and come to me now, I will be your God. Yes. Both. He definitely will be in the new heaven and earth in the millennial kingdom, but it starts for us as his believers, it starts now. As soon as you're his child, he's your God. He indwells us, and we are his people. And I will even go so far as to say, before we were born and he knew what our decision was, we were his people. Because he already knew. Right, because he already knew. So we were his people even before we were born. And if you really want to go back before that, we were his people before he created the heaven and the earth because he already knew everything ahead of time. So it gets to be very confusing when we think about this. We're his people because he already knew that we were going to be his people. And he knew those who were going to reject him, that they're not his people, that they are the subjects of Satan. Not that, well, the subject's not even a good rule because he's not going to rule hell. They just align themselves with with Satan against Jesus. And for a very temporal period of time, they are Satan's subjects. But when they get to hell, and I've said this over and over again, when they get to hell, Satan is not the ruler of hell. He is a prisoner of hell. And everybody who's decided to follow him are prisoners in hell. There's, There's not a kingdom of hell. It is a prison. And there won't be any ruler of hell. It'll just be a bunch of prisoners on there. Satan is not going to be enjoying hell as being in charge. The only thing he might enjoy is that he took a lot of God's precious uh, souls to hell with him. But he's not the ruler of hell. He's not going to be the master of hell. He is going to be the prisoner of hell. And here he says, you know, I will be their God. And, and Jesus here and Jesus says that I will be their God and they will be my people. You know, and it starts here. And this is what we talk about. Eternal life starts the moment we become Christians and God indwells us here. Heaven is wherever God is. And when we're his children, he is in us. This is a great blessing, at least for me. No matter where I am, God is. Where I go, I bring God into the presence, which is where it takes us back to what I was saying before. Just being in in the presence of darkness makes people irritated. They don't like the presence of God brought into their situation when they want to be evil. And that also means that every time we go and do sin, we're dragging God into the middle of that sin, which makes it even worse. They're bad enough that we drug ourselves into sin, but we drag God into the midst of that sin. Which is why we can no longer enjoy sin if we're his. Because when we're in the middle of it, he's going, uh, I don't want to be here. And because you're mine, I don't want you here. And I'm going to make you miserable. Have you ever done something that you knew you weren't supposed to do because you thought you were going to enjoy it, and then when you went to do it, it didn't have any enjoyment in it because God had already convicted you before you decided to do it? I'm not just saying falling into sin. You know, I'm just saying you make a choice. I am going, you make a conscious choice. I am going to do this because I want to. And then you find out that it really wasn't what you wanted and there's no joy in it because you're so convicted because God was telling, God was trying to convict you before you decided to do it anyway. Been there once or twice in my life, not often. Normally I just kind of find myself in the wrong place. But there have been times when I've just said, I'm going to do this. Very defiantly, I'm going to do this. And miserable time. Now, it wasn't that I found myself doing something. It wasn't that I just kind of fell into it. There have been a couple of times where I said, I am going to do this. And God's saying, no, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Go do it. All right, God, would you just leave me alone for a few minutes? Can't I enjoy, enjoy it for a couple seconds? No, I told you not to do it in the first place. That's what he's saying here. You're my people. You're not to commune with darkness. God is not going to let us get away with it. And we bring God into the middle of it, and those around us aren't going to enjoy what they're doing because whether we say anything or not, God is there. People feel the presence of God, even though they may not understand it. They they know something is there. When you And this is what I said. We, we can know that somebody's a Christian without them ever saying a word at times. And you walk up to you, and you, those are the kind of people... I just have to ask you, or like, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I know God so well, and you can end up in an instant fellowship. Very rarely have I gone up to somebody and had them say, no, I'm not a Christian, when I've, when I've had that impression. And you walk up to them, I just gotta understand, You know, how long have you known Jesus? Oh man, you, you know, and just share it. And you don't know what it is, but it's the Spirit. They didn't even do anything. It's just the Spirit coming out of them, because God is so free in their life to come out. And uh, he says, you know, you are this temple. And verse 17 then says, Therefore come out from among them and be you separate, says the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. God says to us, sanctify yourself. Get out from the midst of the sin. Get out of the midst of the unclean. And this is something... You know, this can be taken too far. And again, as I read these, I want to be very careful. It doesn't mean that we have no association with the lost world. Okay? Because if we have no association with the lost world, it's very hard to evangelize. Okay? Well, you know, well, let's see. Look around. All my friends are Christians. God, who do, I, who do I share the gospel with? Now, it is going to happen to us over time, in most cases, if we're a believer, we're going to end up with less and less Unsaved friends. First off, they're just going to think we're not fun anymore. They're going they to stop and they're going to, you, you know, they stop talking to you. They stop inviting you to the parties because you're the wet blanket. You don't want to do anything. You're, you're the person who makes them feel bad because you're bringing God's presence in there. They're they're feeling like you're being judgmental of them. They feel you're being judgmental of them because you're not participating. So therefore, you're judging them. You're saying you're you're better than they are, and all these other things that they're going to throw out eventually yes we're going to stop having friends that are unsaved but we need at that point to start doing things that put us out amongst the lost whether it's walking in the park or playing a sport or you know participating in a hobby that they're in not the church you know at the church but if you're into quilting you go to a quilting quilting group that that has lost people in. Why? So that you get to know some lost people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been a Christian for 48 years and moved around a lot. Most of the people I know are in church. Which is one of the great things I, that I like being out in the prison everyone, you know in many times because I get exposed to lots of lost people. And be able to talk to lost people. And we need this. If, if our life gets so centered in the church, And no lost people, we've got a problem. We've got to get out once in a while and be around the lost world. Not to make them our friends necessarily, not to to make them our best buds, but just so that we have somebody to talk to about Christ. Do something, whatever it might be, we do something to reach out to the lost world. And again, the longer we've been a Christian, sometimes the harder it is to be around the lost world. Because our life starts centering around church and other Christians and all our lost, all our lost friends who kind of, you know, eh, just stay around. You're not invited to anything anymore. And if you invite them to anything, they don't want to be at your, at your group because a Bible study might break out or, or God may be talked about. You know, so they don't want to be around you. But there's also this command that says, come out from among them. Be separate. Be different. And this is important for us that we keep ourselves separate from the world in many ways. Not totally isolated, but we separate ourselves because the world will drag us down. If you've got a best friend, or, you know, a really close friend who's a lost person, they're going to drag you down. They're going to at least tempt you to do things that aren't the right thing. They're going to want to commit gossip. They want to, they'll want to commit, you know, all, the, all kinds of things and to drag you the wrong direction. And we want to be very careful about all of that. And then the last verse of this chapter, again, talking about God, and will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. God desires to be our father. And in another place, he says that we can call him Abba, Father, or Daddy, an affectionate term. And that's kind of an amazing thing. God wants to be our Father, the creator of the universe, the master of all things, says, I want you to be my children. I am so perfect, I am so holy, and yet I want to be your Father. That's a hard thing to imagine, and it can only happen because of the death of Christ when he covers us with his righteousness that we can go to him, and he looks at us and says, that's my child that's my perfect child, not even just my child. Look at, look at all that righteousness on that child. That's a, perfect, that's a perfect kid. And this is one of the reasons I love the verse in Zechariah where Satan is standing before God and the high priest Joshua standing before God. Satan's all ready to accuse the high priest of all of his sin and iniquity and God says, you know, in essence, one moment, angels, Clean up, clean up the high priest, put a new garment on him, clean him up real good, put a, new, put a new miter on him, make him look really good. Then turns to Satan basically and says, okay, what, what was your problem? <laughs> yeah. You know, and he's kind of looking at this guy in spotless righteousness of Christ and he has nothing to say. You know, this is happens to us before God. What was God's testimony of Job? He is a righteous man that hates evil. And I'm sure Job was a pretty good man. Was he an absolutely righteous, perfect man that, that totally hated evil? No, he was a human being. How did the father see him? Through the righteousness of Christ. You got to go through an awful lot. So I can tell you, Job was a pretty righteous man. Was he perfect and spotless? Only because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when God looked at him and said, yeah, that's my perfect child. Go ahead and say, what do you want to do to him? When God looks at us, if we are Christians, he looks at us because we are clothed in Christ, he sees perfection. He sees perfect righteousness. We gotta be careful when we attack each other as Christians. We're in dangerous territory because God says, you're attacking my perfect child. Because we have the righteousness of Christ. From his perspective, we are perfect. He already sees us in our glorified state, as what we will be. And he says, this is my perfect child. What do you, why are you attacking my child? You know, and I think also about, you know, a husband and wife. They should love each other enough that they're not going to listen to anything negative about each other. And spreading negative, or listening to anything negative about their spouse. Most husbands, if they're a good husband, will not let somebody downgrade, you know, downgrade and attack their wife. You know, in their presence or not in their presence. (laughs) And I go, no, you're not going to talk about my wife. When we talk about one another in negative terms, I can almost picture Jesus as I are getting riled up and saying, "Uh, that's my bride you're talking about. Mm -hmm. You're talking about my bride. I love my bride. My bride is perfect. You're not going to talk about my bride that way. We need to be very careful about how we talk about each other, building up each other, edifying each other, knowing that we're not perfect, but that's not the way God sees us. Is there times when we might be able to share with somebody, if you're talking directly to that person and you've been praying for that person, and you go, you know, I really am worried about you in this area. Yes, that's, that's, that is applicable. But my, my, my learning over the years is the more I pray for somebody, God usually changes them before I ever have to say a word to them. And if nothing else it changes my attitude toward them, <laughs> So that I'm not worried about what it is that I was praying for them about. But every once in a while there is that time if you love somebody and God and you've been praying for somebody and God says, okay, now, go be my messenger to them to, to straighten out. But in my experience, that should be very few times. Very few times, because God's more than capable of doing the work on his own and he changes people and i've already told you many times i'd be praying for god to change my wife and he almost always changed me so you know my my attitude lately is god change me and i've taken that same lesson toward the church if somebody's irritating me in church god change me you know whether he changes the other person he might change them as well but change my attitude change my attitude about this person teach me to love them more teach me to to not be as irritated about their little quirk that irritates me, you know, help me to be more patient with them and whatever it might be. And in the process, God might change them, but he definitely changes us to be more like him. Because I am so glad that God is patient with us and he doesn't treat us the way we deserve. You know, because if he did, none of us would be sitting in this room. And we wouldn't have had a chance to save anybody else, probably you know, lead anybody else to him because we were bad right from the beginning. God's patience and his grace is so wonderful, and I love it. And he says, I want to be a father to you, and you are my children. What a blessing. God is our father, and we're his children. To see us us that way. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you, Lord, that we are your children. We thank you that you're our father. Lord, we thank you that you want us set aside and be sanctified. Lord, teach us to be sanctified. Teach us to do things that will sanctify us in your sight, in your presence. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.